Anna Abraham studies the psychological and neurophysiological basis of creativity and other aspects of the human imagination. She has worked across a diverse range of academic institutions and departments, all of which have informed her multidisciplinary focus. She is the founding editor of the Cambridge Elements in Creativity and Imagination, an innovative academic short book series from Cambridge University Press. Professor Abraham directs the Creativity and Imagination Lab at University of Georgia. Anna Abraham, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you for having me. So to introduce listeners to some of your work, you're going to read to us a brief passage from the Cambridge Handbook of the Imagination. Just set up the passage you're going to share with us. All right. I'm reading a few excerpts from the last chapter, which is called Force of the Imagination. So I'll skip little bits between pages. One needs to be able to stand before one can walk. But once walking becomes a virtually effortless capacity, we are able to run, leap, and dance, traversing physical space. Fantastic feats of physical prowess are only possible following the development of a good sense of balance in early childhood. Acquiring a well-functioning system of balance, then, provides the necessary physiological scaffolding that allows us to push and perturb the limits of the balance system. Stability emerges from instability, and from that stability emerges the capacity to engage functionally in designed or engineered temporary instability. So the capacities we acquire for a given purpose are utilized beyond their original context in novel ways. This manner of functional exaptation is a useful way to think about the imagination. Our capacity to imagine is the means by which we can bring images and ideas to mind in the absence of external input. Implicit within this action is the ability to, one, invoke, construct, and integrate concrete and abstract ideations, two, draw on knowledge reserves that we acquire through life experience for the same, and three, distance one's focus from the pressures of the current context. The last enables us to move beyond the confines of a reactive space to that of a proactive realm. Engaging beyond the limits of the active present and the ability to detach oneself from the immediacy of the now enable a wide range of corollaries, ranging from the predictable to the fantastical, from the stable to the precarious. I can imagine my impressions and experiences of persons, objects, and events from seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, years, and decades ago. Roaming the retrospective spaces of what was frees me to explore prospective spaces of what can be seconds later, minutes later, hours later, and so on, as well as adjoining temporal possibility spaces of what might have been. Contemplating hypotheticals and higher-order natural representations opens up the exploration of atemporal spaces of what could be and what if beyond one's own reality. The fidelity of my imaginings to any given reality can range from low to high, depending on the level of accuracy, abstraction, and richness of the experience. My imaginings can vary enormously in their manifestation by being sparse, unimodal, and one-dimensional in some contexts, and rich, cross-modal, and multidimensional in others. Regardless of how transitory or enduring the imaginings, they can evoke emotional responses, action tendencies, and conceptual insights, which are instantiated in the present, in the here and the now. We are thus brought full circle. The point of departure begins with distancing from the present, and the point of arrival in the canvas of the imagination can extend in any direction or to any extent, and even right back to and encroaching on the present. 
Metaphors are a useful semantic tool to wield in order to grasp, represent, and communicate ideas about complex phenomena. And there can scarcely be any doubt that our understanding of a construct as complex as the imagination would be aided by the same. So which metaphor would fit in this context? An apt one to apply may be that of water, owing to the somewhat uncanny similarities between the features, forms, and forces of the human imagination and the properties of water. Imagination can manifest in widely different forms, from the tangible to the intangible. Its workings range from calm and predictable to volatile and unpredictable. It is a fundamental part of our physiological makeup, permeating our very being, and it is essential to our mental life. It is nourishing and constructive. It can also be overwhelming and destructive. It is quiet. It is dogged. It shapes. It wheels. It fits. It flows. It pushes against fault lines. It breaks away. It lacks definition, yet it is formidable. This is what we have been granted as a species, a true force of nature within ourselves, the force of imagination. I love that metaphor and I love water. I don't know if you know this about me. I'm a painter and my ongoing series is called Memory of Water and how water is a mirror that invites us to dream. And I always find that it's a beautiful metaphor for creative endeavor. And what you shared opened up so many questions. You identify that the imagination helps us endure our present, also calls back to the past as a possible purpose of the imagination to imagine our possible end. We go through many endings in these stories we tell ourselves, and it's hard for us to accept our ending. And so maybe it's one way of preparing ourselves for that. Absolutely. I agree. It's there to help us process what we're experiencing. We're not bound by the present. And so it's an enormous gift we have to keep revisiting what we've been through, what's possible. And by revisiting it, we change our memories, we change how things were, and so on. And we build up our strength and reserve sometimes when things go well. And we can be negatively affected, of course, if we fixate on something that is not quite so good for us to be fixating on. Yeah, memory and the stories we tell ourselves and also that there isn't just one truth. And that's what, as creative beings, we understand that we have all these different perspectives. I just thought that question was interesting about imagining ends and our final departure because it seems a little bit esoteric. But when we talk about animals. I find their endeavors are very artistic when you study animal behavior, but we often don't consider them as being able to imagine their own death or to have a creative capacity. We imagine often that their activities are automatic. What are your reflections on creativity within non-human animals? Yeah, I would suddenly say there's actually a lot of evidence to show their creativity. Some things that much more on the domain that we would perhaps not always view as creative if we focus on creative, on the creative arts specifically. But if we look at creativity as the sort of a fundamental capacity to generate novel and satisfying responses, a lot of problem solving requires creativity. When, and there is a great deal of evidence in different species that when faced with an unknown situation or just completely unfamiliar, really vague situations, Certain species are better than this than others, but really, it's very well studied in Caledonian crows, for instance. You put them at these sort of really strange puzzles and they figure out a way around it. So they are generating creative solutions in order to get at what they want, which is usually a piece of food or something of that sort. Other primates also show creative problem solving. In fact, among the earliest researchers, the Gestalt psychologists in Germany, 
in the 40s and the 50s. Their study on creativity began with looking at chimpanzees in the Leipzig Zoo, I think, where they looked at creative problem solving. But they put like little puzzles for the real world puzzles that animals would care about. So partly it's being able to give them the kind of opportunities where they can show this. But even if you look at the sort of aesthetic aspects of creativity, there are lots of species that sort of will show this. So there are sort of weaver birds, for instance, and the kind of nests they make and so on. So there's a strong aesthetic eye. And I think they've evolved for that purpose because it is very often what people believe is that it's a show of fitness. And so it makes sense for them to develop a keen eye for certain types of aesthetic phenomena in each of the species. So that that seems to also be a thing. Yes, I think so. Definitely the most obvious comparisons that we can think to ourselves would be dancers and singers or musicians. And, and I feel in some ways when you observe animals, sometimes their creativity is even, you know, in their coloring. We are kind of disembodied in many ways, That's divisions right. between mind and body, but it's within them in terms of closely bound to their survival. It's absolutely true because they are very physical, much more physical than we are because they have to be because it's most thankfully still live in the wild and not all of them are hoed up in zoos or whatever. But yeah, I mean, they're physically, if you look at what they're capable of, you see, do you see quite astonishing sort of novel adaptations in the way that they move? So that's, that's where they would show it most. You also have really interesting social behaviors that you might see. So when one species becomes friendly with another species, so you have these individual elements of a cow befriending a dog, or I think there was one series where a chimp takes care of a goat. Those are not in their usual repertoire of action. So it is showing a novel response that goes well beyond their repertoire. So I think there's a lot that you can see that is unusual, but A, we're not studying them as much. But one advantage of perhaps social media <laughs> is that people post videos of animals that I like to see, of doing really strange things. And that's when I would look at that and think, this is really kind of exceptional, because how else would you explain it except through some form of social imagination? Or it's impossible not to see them as empathic creatures, for instance, even for creatures that are not within their own species and so on. So I agree that we have to look at what's important to them and look at the creativity that they exhibit in those domains. I think being bound up a little bit to their sense of survival, also if you watch the murmuration of birds, we can see that it's to avoid predation, but it's so beautiful. Speaking about artistry or knowing one's own mind and finding creative pathways, I had a conversation not long ago with the free climber Alain Robert, and you might have seen he's climbed over 150 sky scrapers with his bare hands, no ropes. Oh, gosh. And okay. also rock faces. But I mean, this is relating to knowing one's mind. And he said, you know, there's no safety net. There's nothing. right. And he says, my mind is my safety net. I know my mind very well. And I guess it made me think a little bit about your exploration of creativity and why is it important to know one's own mind and how artists or other creatives get to know their mind. Often we compare an act of great artistry to this. Maybe it's a tight wire or just something that we didn't think was possible. But through diligence and knowing one's own mind, one can arrive at, you know, one can soar. Yes. I mean, it's something that I've noticed in, you know, I love podcasts and things like that. If only to listen to people who've done incredible things, like the person you just mentioned is as well as artists, we live in a kind of unusual time where we can hear firsthand people talking about their own experiences, what they went through when they were creating something. And while artists differ greatly from one another in terms of specifics of their process, what certainly seems to be the case is that they're extraordinarily interested in their own minds. And they have what we would call a metacognitive awareness, an awareness of what you're thinking about. And they know almost quite precisely at least what doesn't work for them. They're very cued in 
into what to avoid and how to sort of generate the mental conditions that are necessary in order to be as generative or as creative as they are likely to be in that specific situation. So that is a deep matter of awareness that they have about their own process that is really quite something. They know themselves very well. And talking about creating the conditions, one, creating the conditions to create an artist or a creative, which will go into also creativity and scientific realms and all of the different creativities. It does seem to me, and someone who's grown up around a lot of artists and creatives, some people who are just have that creativity a little bit closer to the surface. We all have it, but for whatever reason, and you've studied how you can identify creative children. What are some of the reasons behind that? Well, I think when you, if it's closer to the surface, as you so beautifully put it, it's usually that you see it through their personality a lot more than it's just not just their actions or their products that they create, but they somehow are glowing with it in a sense. And you usually see that when they essentially embody specific traits that we know to be very important for creativity. And one is a sort of openness to new experiences that is one of the most consistent findings in creativity research that people across the board, whether you're looking at artists or scientists who have reached some level of creative eminence, they're all marked by a specific kind of openness to new experience, very deeply curious and game for anything, if you want, you know, for what a possibility can tell them or the level to which it can take them to next. So they are open to it, excited by it. And the second thing is that they exude a certain kind of confidence. Creative confidence is something that really can't be taught. And you can tell people you should be more confident, but it's something that they have to, it can be cultivated by the person themselves. But usually what you see is this enormous confidence in what perhaps, and sometimes they'll say it in this destiny kind of words, like I was put here for this reason. I know that I'm, you know, I have a purpose in life and that is and so on. That stems from a sort of profound confidence about what they have to offer the world and what lies within them. And so I would say those two features are perhaps the things that those sorts of people embody. It's not that those people who don't show it don't have it, but the ones that we sort of identify physically almost whenever they speak of it, they have that, as you said, close to the surface. So maybe for some, it's an awareness of this gift, this thing that they can't contain, they must share. Maybe it's almost like a teaching process because, wow, I have this within me. I need to share it with others. And others we know by reading or hearing the biographies of some artists. Unfortunately, sometimes it does come about through trauma or experiencing pain and maybe wanting to create another alternate reality that retells it and gives that pain purpose. Yes. I mean, I think the motivations can be quite different, the underlying motivations. And for some people, I think that what's really common to all of them is this essential drive that they have something to say. What they have to say, why they have to say it can kind of defer. And what sort of energies lead to the realization of that drive can be very different across people. But they are very driven and very confident. And I think what's striking in it is that even if you're not entirely sure what it is you have to offer, you know that given time, effort, and devotion to a specific question or purpose, then you will get there. So that's sort of a fate in one's promise in terms of what can one can offer the world, perhaps, or, the, or oneself in terms of where you want to see yourself or elevate yourself to a richer understanding, perhaps of your own self. It's always a process of self-discovery, of course. That's a great enjoyment in that it's not just for others, it's also for oneself. The more you achieve creatively, the more you understand about yourself, because it is so unique what you have produced. Like no two people can write exactly the same book. There's something to be said for that, for instance. No two people can draw exactly the same thing or the the motivations they have to do something would be quite different. So it is kind of a unique self-discovery process. And I think at some level, extremely creative people know that the promise comes in the doing 
And that is something that they're not just aware of, but they really feed off of that kind of energy. And what are your feelings about the concept of genius? What would you like to add to that term? And do you feel it's detrimental for us to think in those terms? I don't. Yeah. I mean, the word genius can mean quite different things to people. If I would go with the sort of perhaps not a very controversial definition, it would be looking at people who've accomplished something that seems well beyond what most people at that either age group or in that field and so on would do. So it goes well, well, well beyond what is standard. And so you're looking at the achievements of somebody, what they've displayed in terms of their creative prowess or the products that they've created. I don't think there's any problem with that at all. I think if we ignore that creativity can manifest in very different ways. And some people, of course, have really recognizable talent from a very young age. So, and yes, you would say that there's something exceedingly unusual about five-year-old Mozart composing a piece. Like that's, it's, it's, of course, people would see that as a genius thing because for his age group, he's doing something that is pretty much unprecedented. But I think it's only really an issue if we think that is the only way to be created, which tends sometimes to be this glorifying of one particular way of being creative at the expense of others. And I think what is worrisome to me about that is all of the things that we're ignoring in this race to find the best, the most, you know, the always we're looking for these pinnacle things, which is fantastic. But the second best idea, the third best idea you have is also pretty good, perhaps, you know, and also extremely valuable. A person who first produces that art in their 70s, like Grandma Moses did, and went on to find great acclaim, is also something to appreciate. And as long as some of the objects being created or the works that we are looking at fill us with awe and wonder and inspiration, it really should matter who is creating them, but how old the person is, what gender. It's almost like if we look to label in specific ways, those labels in and of themselves are not necessarily problematic. It's the way people use them and all the other things they ignore that don't fit into that label. That is the problem. And then if they start to equate any ability that you have to be creative with only genius, then you're kind of cutting out 98% of the world or more. And so that doesn't seem from a scientific standpoint or right from a moral standpoint. So that will be my issue with the word genius. But those terms exist for a reason. We can't get rid of them. And the better way to try and think of is, well, that's not the only thing to creativity. There are many routes to Rome, as they say. Definitely. And there's works of maybe quiet genius, or they're not aiming to be masterworks, but are in their own way, you know, moving and touching, but less flashy. So there's all these different grades. But yeah, I think we should query those terms and we can have problems with them. You know, I did an interview with the president of the Picasso Museum. And of course, we have to discuss that term when we talk about Picasso. There are just some talents that never seem to stop. Absolutely. Yeah. And you wonder how they found the energy. It's mm -hmm. interesting that you mentioned artists who, like Grandma Moses, or those who find their, publish their first book into their 50s or 60s. Something comes late, but there is the life that is the scaffolding that may build up to that moment. I very much believe that, you know, life can be a work of art. And I'm sure with the artists, the creatives that you've studied have found that a lot of that work takes place not when they're making the work but in the life that's about just observing and taking things in. We need both, right? Absolutely, yeah. And 
there's a friend of mine as a, a pianist who went to study piano quite late in life and he's now a professional pianist but he's always rused the day that he didn't start earlier because we just didn't grow up in the kind of circumstances I said I think he was nine or ten and that was considered way too late to be as the professional realm that he is and I remember sending him an article that I came across a long time ago to say well what he has though is a lot of different experiences right like those nine years of his life he had a really kind of interesting life he wasn't spending four hours a day locked up somewhere learning to play the piano he went out he lived he met people he loved well he had interesting friends he had terrible times great times and all of that informs your capacity to be expressive and so there's a lot to think about that life experiences is your scaffold and partly a lot of our creative works that especially those that involve expression but even though that are mainly problem solving realm, we know that a lot of the greatest ideas have come from being able to use information or sort of frameworks from one domain and apply them in a completely different domain. This kind of analogical mapping that takes place it comes from people who have had, who don't just do the one thing that they're supposed to do or seem to have talent for and so on, but comes from having a really widened view of the world, have, you know, creative hobbies, have interest in the arts and crafts, are interested in other fields of study. And so even that there are great examinations of that sort of thing, that what is the lived life of people who end up, you know, winning Nobel Prizes or getting on national academies for the science of the arts and things like that. And if you examine those lives, as some people have, like the Ruth Bernstein, you find really interesting things, what, what they do in their leisure and how many of them are very aware that it actually feeds into in some indirect way into their creative spirit, if you want, in terms of just by using their minds and bodies in a different way than they would by being, you know, a computer scientist. But over here, doing carpentry, there's something reflective, that quiet reflection that you have at that process, this completely separate task that you're doing that involves a lot of skill, a lot of, you know, sensory motor coordination and so on. It's a skill that you can get better at. As you get better, you can experience flow moments there, which might be quite similar to the flow moments you have when you're in this other scientific space. There's a lot that we know about how all of that maps onto each other. So of course, the lived experience you have, not just in terms of how many years, but actually what you do with those years and how you spend your life is enormously important for what informs your creativity and the way you think. And I've certainly encountered people. I think the important thing is with talented individuals, it, sometimes it has that option, as you say, to express itself in different domains. They may have their primary domain and they have usually a variety of others and they may be so unrelated. So I think that, and these are some things that you write about and you teach workshops, how do you identify that principal domain? Because when talent is there, it will come out one way, but sometimes it's really important to find out the one where you that really chimes with you. Yeah. And I, that's, that is a good point. How do you know that you're talented at something? At some point you encountered it or you were around it and you felt the pull, the drive towards it. Some people have it very early on and other people do not. And the question of how do you know what works for you is a very big one. And partly it has to do with your opportunities that you have, the house you grew up in and so on. And that's not to say that those are determining factors, because there are plenty of examples of people who didn't come from any sort of background of artistry and then went on to become incredible artists and the same for the sciences. So how to identify it is really based on what you encounter in the world and what you're aware of and your awareness of your own skills, really. But for anyone who takes to art, they just understand that when you first did it or the earlier early encounters with it, was a sort of almost spiritual phenomenon. This is also true of scientists. They feel like they're part of something larger and it's impossible to define it for any one person, but you know it when you're in it. 
you discover for yourself that when you're writing a diary at night, that you, when you twist the words a specific way, it gives you incredible joy. And then you realize that this is your own private thing that you could do really well. And you choose to pursue it even more and more and more. But I think one way to do it is when they're young enough to expose them to as many different things as possible. And the kind of workshops that I do that a lot of people who come are much, much older people who are post-retirement, they're not necessarily working. And then they're thinking to what they want to do. And they think back to, I've asked them, why do you come? Why this? Why not something else? And it would be, well, I thought back to the thing that gave me joy when I was really young, that really wanted to do at some point, but never got the chance to, never got the opportunity to. And now they do. And they're, I don't know, 70 years old, right? So a lot of it is just opportunity, really, in order to try out things. We've just engineered a kind of existence in most societies that we're in to be very singular and purposive in what you do and go for that one thing and pursue it really hard and go down one route and everything you do has to be in service of that level of it and the achievement and that one thing will count and anything else is a waste of time and that's what we do with the way people think and a lot of people will completely lose that impulse to do something that they found interesting because there's so much more incentives to do the kind of things that are very clearly valued in society or will lead them to the next place that will give them more than what they have. A lot of people have that financial imperative, so they can't take out that time, even they know it's in them. But I've encountered people that make that extreme leap and it's autodidactic and it doesn't even make sense. Now you're going to think I speak to a lot of mountain climbers, but I did speak to a, this. It was a known climber and then he decided well, you kind of age out in that. And he became a very big film editor, like The Hunger Games. And he's self-taught. So even without the structure, I don't know how he did that because those are very complex movies to edit, but he fell into it somehow. And so you can make it happen if you have a dream, even if the path does not Absolutely. seem linear. Yes, I agree. And we do live in an era where you can just open a book and see someone's. I've been motivated to do a lot of things because I've encountered the ideas. Somebody said something that I read in a book that was enough to like spur me on. And I essentially, the autodidactic sort of approaches, it almost is part of the process. It's what people do because it's not about going to the right course to do the right thing. You don't have to do an MFA to be an artist. So it's more like your curiosity will lead you places. So I'm assuming for him here that he was curious about something and learned more and read more and found out more and then thought, gosh, this is what really interests me and then jumped over, right, to try something else. Again, it takes creative confidence to do that sort of thing as well. But yeah, so this fundamental sort of curiosity about the world then to feel, I mean, empowered is an overused word, but really at some level to think, oh, I can do more. All comes from within in some sense that you have to decide at some point that's what I want to do. Like I have that situation as an academic. I was doing mainly academic papers and then suddenly I thought I want to write this book. It just came out of it, you know, but I wouldn't have thought of 10 years before that I'm going to write a book one day. But the impulse hit me and then I thought there's a need for it and no one's talking about this. And so I'd like to do this. And you know, it's almost like there's a force of its own, if you know what I mean, underlying it all. I started writing poetry a year ago and I've loved it ever since. Like Anna said, creating something gave me a lot of joy. Creating something can make people feel proud and accomplished, and I feel that those feelings are very important. Anna was also talking about how it doesn't matter when you create, you should just do it, and I agree with that. It doesn't matter if you start creating later in life or earlier in life, you should just create because you are creating something and because you want to. It could be an inspiration to people around you. That's why I write poetry. I want people to be inspired by what I write. I want people to relate to my words or just think about them. 
I feel like those inspirations from art and creating is important because we live in a society where things can be mundane and we do the same thing every day that things start to feel not as exciting. Creating or looking at art it also romanticizes things and makes the world seem more beautiful. This was a poem that I wrote when thinking about Anna's words. When the world started painting in gray, a sparkle flew past my eyes. The loud clacking of my fingers as the words kept singing in harmony. The colors started coming alive. I would return to my chair every time. And the hugs of the clouds, the feathers of their arms comforting as the sun kisses the tree's cold feet. My eyes skimmed the inch creation, the sweetness of the salt water, the shimmer of the hands of an author. So please stand, the arts, as we clap, whistle, and thank. A light stamped into the mountains we hike. An inspiration everywhere to be gossiped about. Forevermore in society's awing eyes. The beauty of the golden butterfly. Now back to the interview. And I do want to go into how your background in theater may help you with intuition and psychology and just being able to tell these stories and imagine yourself into their minds and into creativity, those that you write about. But you mentioned this something about it comes from within. And many artists also feel that it's creating the conditions to let things in from without. Like it's not something else takes over. Yes. Yeah. When I mean it comes from within, it's like the realization comes from within. But you need things in place outside. And I can say it for myself that it's happened when I decided to not go down the route to become a psychotherapist and decided to go into research instead. I remember those moments quite clearly where I suddenly realized that I was, this is when I was doing a master's degree in England in psychology, that I was being taught by the reading we were doing was the same. The person introducing the study, he was introducing his own study, which had never happened to me before. I'd never been taught by people who were researchers, that taught by people who were Yes, psychologists and are trained and so on and so forth, but they weren't necessarily doing a lot of work on their own on specific like topical things. And I remember thinking, gosh, this is amazing. I thought this was well beyond anything that I would encounter in a normal situation. And while I was listening to the ideas, I immediately started to trigger lots of questions of my own about what had been done there. And Instantly, I felt, well, I can do this. And this is not only that I can do this, that it's actually exciting for me. And I suddenly realized, oh, I want to do research. That's it. And I want to do research on creativity, which was always my favorite thing to focus on. What I'm also interested in is the conscious and the unconscious from what comes from without is that one gets to a certain level of mastery or practice or habit that you can tap it. You can hear voices. You can see things. And it's almost visionary. Yeah. The unconscious elements, they're incredibly powerful, and we can only speak about them with pure speculation. But there's lots of other factors that I'm absolutely completely unaware of that have been running my entire life, pushing me, priming me for that moment. And it's only when it really enters into consciousness that I know, oh, I can push this. I can go this way or that way, but or I should do this or I should do that. Or I really am conscious that this will make me fulfilled in a way that nothing else will. But the unconscious realm, I think you see it play with a certain amount of expertise as well, and a certain amount of familiarity in any given domain, that when you enter into a space of absolute focus, concentration, whether it's writing or painting and stuff, there is this little conduit space. And this is the flow experience is where you get a glimpse into what your unconscious can do for you. And if you try to think back, it's impossible to verbalize what exactly happened in that half hour that felt like many, many hours and you did all of these things. And this is probably why the flow experience is so sought after by most people who are interested in their creativity, because they know that there is that space 
there's something that is not only because it's effortless, but because there's something that's deeply, uniquely within oneself that comes out there that is very hard to get at if you go about it through the more deliberate kind of routes which are available to you. There's something about being in that space of flow where it comes out almost automatically. It's spontaneous and surprising, and it's also uniquely you. And so I think I'm always hesitant to talk about the unconscious because I have a lot of respect for it, but also because I know that if I'm going to explain it after the fact, I don't know what happened in that moment, right? But something did happen and I can see the evidence of it. And all I can say is the more I push myself to enter those spaces, the more interesting things sort of tend to happen. And I'm writing a book at the moment as well. And it's a nice space where I can see now with the experience that I have in writing that these things sort of mesh together a lot more. Like what was much harder to do five years ago comes across a lot smoother in ways that I never anticipated. So some of the earliest theories in creativity have been really to talk about the role of the unconscious. Predictably, it's the psychodynamic perspective that talked about creativity first in a sort of really formalized way. And it was really about the dance between what they call primary process thinking, the sort of fantasy-oriented, completely analogical, free associative space, and what they call secondary process thinking, which is much more analytic, logical, and so on. And that this calls for a kind of exquisite dance between the two. I don't feel like ownership over it because it just pops into your head and you have no idea how it got there. But there's enough that we know from the brain sciences that you're only conscious of the tiniest part of any part of your life. I think it was Daniel Kahneman who said, the perceptual present is nine seconds long. And of course it's limited in terms of how much information you can hold. So anything that you're not accessing is stored some is somewhere else. Just because you're not accessing it, it doesn't mean it's not there. But the implicit nature of it is really, really clear that you can't trigger a flow experience at all, unfortunately. But I found that a number of people have it mm -hmm. automatically. And the issue with those people who practice a lot of improvisation, there are a lot of people who just flow. And the issue for them, and it's something that I have access to, so it's something I speak of from experience. The issue for them is to identify the best ideas, to identify it's flowing quite frequently all the time. And it's about being able to turn it off then and then identifying the best ideas because they're flowing with maybe too many ideas. And then to find one is working in a collaborative medium where one has to then focus on practicalities of financing or, you know, if they have big ambitious yeah. projects that it doesn't just rest on them. So it's identifying the strongest ones when you're having so much flow, then potentially all of them are really good, but then deciding which ones to follow. Yeah. I think John Cleese's framework is probably the best for that sort of thing, where he says, but the flow experience is not where you take those decisions anyway. You just don't. You take the decisions when you're outside the flow experience and not in. So he refers to that based on McKinnon's work as the open mode versus the closed mode. And to realize the advantages of both, that the open mode is there to just generate, because the minute you're trying to control the ideas in terms of how good they are and stuff, you fall out of the open mode. You're not in the flow experience anymore. Just the shaping and sculpting that goes on with specific forms of creativity mean that those sorts of prunings are really, really important in certain aspects and as much important the creative process. But the flow mode, especially when I'm thinking of flow, I'm thinking more in terms of music or the physical spaces and stuff. So there's lots of situations in which that mimic flow, but are not really, would not be considered creative flow in the classic sense. But I think in terms of the frameworks, probably John Cleese's framework was an interesting one to think about ways as well. 
the closed mode is where, but perhaps it only is about writing. I'd be interested to know what it's like for you as a visual artist. Well, I'm a figurative painter and it involves a lot of technique in order for those oil paintings, which are built up in layers, to be successful in terms of the subjects and the atmosphere I place them in. What I depict is quite realistic, but when I write and also dance, it's different. There's a freer dance where the thoughts flow and the imagination takes over. But I do access improvisation with less planning with my abstract paintings. It's interesting that some of those brain scans that have been done on people who practice like live improvisations, Gabriela Montero, and she does the classical piano in response to people throw her out an idea and she improvises on a theme. But then she said there've been brain scans and of her and her sense of self, it like it disappears in during those moments. Like some musicians have shared with me that their sense of self, like they weren't there. They were gone. Yeah. And they'd have to be, I think, because, I mean, some work by Charles Lim has shown that as well, because you're not, it's not a reflective, it's not a consciously reflective mode. And so it's not a mode where, especially the self just kind of disappears. There's a loss of self-consciousness. That's one of the elements of it. And it's, in the case of improv, like in those sorts of cases where it's like physical, it's, it might be a slightly different experience as well compared to someone like sitting in front of a page and trying to write. Because... Like those physical embodiments of flow, whether it's on a sporting arena and some in any sport or where you're trying to improvise in front of a group of people. And verbally, of course, very much if it's sort of stand-up comedy or that kind of improv that happens, you are in a collective space as well. That could be quite different. But I think what's interesting to me is that not all improv is creative. That's something that really needs to be noted as well. We think of improvisation as always being creative, but it's not necessarily the case. There's lots of interviews with Pat Metheny, for instance, who talks about improvisation. And there is, among people who improvise a lot, they know when they're, when it's hitting the highest note of creativity, but they're also very good at playing. Is the word creative. Do you mean not everything is completely new? I think that within all art, there's always a basis that right. you're building upon a grammar. Because I would tend to think that I understand there might be moments where a musician will be falling upon a certain sequence of notes, but the whole arrangement is the creativity in it. And I know that's quite hard to do. And so I wouldn't like to say what you're doing isn't creative. I just have to say. No, no, no. I'm, oh gosh. I no. know. No, I just say. The word when we talk about create, I'm talking about like magnitudes of creativity. That's it. When we have a concept of magnitudes of creativity that go like four magnitudes from like little C all the way to B, what do you call it? Big C, the eminent type, mini C. The something that is novel and satisfying to oneself is also creative. It's absolutely fine. But I always warn against, I wouldn't say that it's not creative per se, but what artists who use it to the highest level, they wouldn't think that is their, what I call it, creative best or has really pushed their creativity up a notch. It is still creative, but the magnitude is not of the order of what they were trying to reach even. Um, there's a great interview between Alan Alda, a great improver, one of the world famous improvers there, who makes a great case for improvisation, improving communication, for instance. He's got a great podcast and he interviewed Pat Metheny, I think a few years ago, and they were just talking about, how, again, the metacognitive awareness of their process, what they do, and Metheny keeps notes every after every single performance about what he did and whether he reached that flow state and he improvises every single night, right? So there is a notion out there that if it's improvised, it's the best form of whatever. But I just want to draw in, not that it's not creative, but the word creative is used quite differently by the people who are trying to reach sort of new heights in their own artistry. And yes, they have improvised, but they wouldn't necessarily be the most satisfied 
by what they might have produced on a given night, even though it would be creative and would be even seen as satisfying by the audience. Yes, of course. I, but I think sometimes the magic of creativity is even in the absences or the simplicity. So I just wouldn't feel it would be a good to put such a high bar that everything has to be completely new. We have to use those basic yeah. blocks. I remember that he's talked about comedy and the great George Carlin and, you know, he's always picking apart language. And he said these expressions like uh, use your words. Someone says, use your, they say, you speak for yourself, use your own, your own words. But he's no, we use our words. The word, there's only so many words we can use. You can't. Oh, sure. My own yes. words. Yeah. And I don't think, I mean, at least for creative researchers, we, there is no concept of completely new out of nothing. Everything is based on something that exists. And it's just a question of how far, how novel that combination of things is, of the way you've used your conceptual networks and how far it is from the status quo of what is seen as, as traditional or whatever is seen as the norm now. And so there, from a neuroscientific standpoint, it would make really no sense to say that something is completely new. It sort of, whatever conceptual novelty you have comes from perhaps an unused, a previously unused linking of concepts but those are the concepts that exist in your mind anyway so a very simple example would be you know you know the color purple and you have a concept of an elephant and i can just put the word purple elephant and you can imagine it although you've never really seen a purple elephant right i imagine <laughs> so that's a very simple way to think well anything in your conceptual networks is it's not coded sort of linearly it's not like it's code your brain doesn't code for things like a computer does or it doesn't say things like a computer does someone expressed it really well once that memories are woven really and so when you pull it one it has all of these connections like when you pull it one thread it loosens up things into the entire fabric the way it enters in might be linear but the way it's saved is not so that's what gives rise to all sorts of incredible combinations in our conceptual networks. But of course, it has to be there. If I don't know what something is, I can't imagine something that is in no way, shape or form linked to something I haven't known, seen, experienced in some form or the other. And speaking of, you know, memories and uh, the cultural, historical memory that we embody, we repeat patterns. You've been able to observe different, you know, creative approaches or the collective imaginations in different countries. So you, India, where you were born, I believe also Germany, the UK, the US. And as you step back, you can kind of see patterns and you can understand how that informed you or how that defines a culture. What are your observations on that? We can also look back in time. You can look back and say, oh, 100 years ago, and you can see how we think of all the individual artists, but you can see how there's movements. And so as you consider the different countries that you have lived in, what is your take on the national imagination, you know, the creative cultural bedrocks in which you've lived? It's an interesting question. Don't think I've ever been asked that before. It does strike me that there are a lot of cultural differences in what people think are possible or acceptable and so on. Where I grew up was India. So it's almost like whenever I visit, it is imaginatively a very different space for me already. I think it was certainly a much more magical space than the West is for me today. It's filled with stories, with myths and tales that are told almost as fact sometimes, right? Like this is a thing that is, this is our reality. So there's a, a cultures that have big spaces for stories entering into the real world, in a sense. Things like when a child is born, a birth chart is generated by an astrologer that tells what's going to happen. And this is based on very ancient practices. 
of how they see the stars of a line in a specific way. And this is, they know this from what's happened before. You're born to a particular, it's a kind of a local zodiac sign and so on. So this, and people talk like this. It's not a weird thing. It's part of the culture. I remember my mom always had a really strange calendar up in the kitchens, which was not really well aligned to what the Gregorian calendar is. And so the discourse is very different. The space for stories that would be considered mythical, legendary, odd, is very much imbued in everyday life. And people will talk about unusual experiences that they've had, whether it's encountering ghosts, things that they've heard, seen, and people will speak to you based to attribute things to you based on what they think is associated with you. So there's a lot of interesting, sometimes positive, sometimes negative things there, but it's a very different space. And I always tell my friends, whenever I go back to visit, I find myself believing more in everything else that I could just leave out the, leave outside the door whenever I come back to the Western Hemisphere. There's something about the imaginative landscape there, people where there is not this clear division between what's real and what's story, at least, and that stories matter and the stories of your ancestors matter. And all of that feeds into your identity and who you are and what you were put in this world for. So there's a lot of, there's a kind of fatalistic thinking that comes with it as well. And that's not there at all, I think, in any part of the Western Hemisphere. There are lots of advantages to thinking very freely about that you're not really bound, you're absolutely untethered. You can do anything, be anything. You can do whatever you want. And so there's this great freedom that comes with conceptually that comes with it but being untethered also means that you can get pretty lost you can be in a group of one being the only one who thinks what you do and so on so they're not having to really make yourself known heard understood by anyone else because individuality is so strongly prized i think there's a lot about the collective imagination here that i like there's a deeper sense of civic responsibility, let's say, thinking about how actions today can affect what happens to people 50, 100 years from now, whether we're talking about climate change or any kind of anything quite local even. I was really struck by that in Europe, the civic duty aspect of thinking for the community. So people will go on strike for against whatever, some something to do with the nuclear reactor on the corner or two hours away. And I'd never seen that sort of thing. And I haven't been long enough in the US to get a clear sense of what things are here, but it is so uniquely multicultural. It's incredible. The variety of experience, the variety of tales and stories and backgrounds, the enormous acceptance. It's very different to be in a country that is open in quite the way that it is. It is interesting how you identify the sense of the common mythology and maybe a sense of fate. Maybe that means not feeling empowered to have these activist movements because in a way it's been stories that have helped people in India deal with what might be a natural disaster or other things that might happen. And in a strange way, it circles back to what we were talking about at the beginning about overcoming pain or as a means of survival. And I was wondering how the different languages that you speak might have opened your mind to creativity. There's this great book by Raymond Dore, I think, about speaks about language and he talks about language as, as a technology. And so it's, first we created language and then language changed us. And I believe that is true. So I have learned new languages and I do think that knowing those languages changed me. I don't know how yet though, but it certainly has expanded my repertoire of not just concepts, knowledge, but feelings and perceptions that I have and so on. But how it is informed my creativity, I imagine, because it would, it influences the way I, creativity is 
primarily informed by the way you think and perceive and experience the world. And so, of course, it would have, but I wouldn't be able to like really put my finger on exactly how. But I have no doubt that it really has for the simple reason that it has obviously changed me to learn those new languages, especially as an adult, I think. And it also points to the fact that language isn't just meaning it's music and image and it's, of course, concept and it's all these things. And how we even if we speak the same language, read the same book but get something completely no. different out of it. Absolutely. It is really, it's a, it's a magic of writing. But there was one thing that I felt we should touch on. And I know you've been considering the way social media and technology is influencing our imaginations and it may be in some ways rewiring the sensitive to their brains. You know, it's changing the rhythms of our mind. Yeah, I'm very concerned about it, actually, especially in terms of how it affects the youngest among us, because they sort of know no other world that they've not really experienced anything quite different. I think it affects how we, everything, <laughs> I'm going to say only something. No, it actually affects everything. When I look at students, I have like the great advantage of teaching very young people because I'm a university professor. And it's interesting because I always reflect while I watch them on what I would do differently or what, how I was different. So the, I get to class about 20 minutes in advance to set things up and slowly people start coming in. And what they do is not talk to each other. They're just on their phones, right? So I think it affects their social understanding of their fellow humans. I also think it affects the attentional capacity. So there's a, this exceeding sort of shift of exogenous control of your attentional systems at the expense of your endogenous control within you, which I think is bad. And in terms of creativity, the biggest perhaps is both how it affects your capacity to produce responses, but also your ability to assess things because you're so completely aware of what everyone else is thinking that it's really hard to develop your own personal, unique standpoint or, or your take on something because you're always thinking about what other people are thinking or you know what they're thinking. Everything you get is immediately filtered through the eyes of eyes and opinions of others. So I think people are losing a sense of what is really unique about their own sort of ways of thinking that are unique to them. And because there's a, a huge focus on saying the right thing and being really politically correct, the risk averseness is crept in. And that is the absolute death of creativity because you need people to be able to take risks in order to be creative. And so I really fear for what all of this will do to creativity more than anything else. I think that it does have a way of, for those who can be self-directed, they'll always find a way through. They've always known yeah. how to protect themselves. They've always been able to find voice for their imagination. It That's is right. a bit dangerous early on. But an interesting note on that is I was speaking with Dr. Anna Lemke, who wrote Dopamine Nation. She said that those who are having addiction problems is not just the very young, who's finding it in middle age because they, those people of a certain age didn't grow up with it. So yeah. they didn't have the barriers. So if they get right. into it, they can be far more prey. Mm -hmm. Just I don't want to say we're all doomed. We just have to know how to protect ourselves. As you say, it's about yeah. keeping that dreaming space open, not being subjected to everyone's interpretations so that we can be free and just maintain that childlike experimentation and the joy of creation. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely necessary. Yes. So you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation and you reflect on the importance of the arts and creativity. What would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Mm -hmm. Beautiful question. I would like people to know that everyone is creative because it's really a fundamental drive that we have. Some people just express it more than others and some people are more in tune with it than others. 
But just because you're not entirely aware of what it is or that you might have it or recognize it in yourself, it doesn't mean it's not there. That's the first thing I would want people to know. Secondly, I would like young people to think about it more as they would something like physical fitness, which, you know, until the 80s was also seen as something quite exclusive. Not everybody knew anything. Nobody really knew anything about fitness before TVs became available in people's houses. TV programs were there to talk about physical fitness. Before that, it was really the domain of just a few people who had opportunity to go to ridiculously expensive clubs or, but nobody really had the means or the, the knowledge. And it's only when it sort of opened up with, I don't know, aerobics programs and things like that, that people started to become aware of that it's within their grasp. They can do things by themselves. They can go for, they can actually try to get some control over the way their bodies are, are physically developing and not just developing, but just maintaining and toning them. And now if you fast forward now, no one would think that the, was such a recent thing, actually, but because there were so many, whatever you call it, gyms, studios, everything, everywhere. And everyone has a sense of what physical fitness is. Even if you choose not to do anything about it, you at least know there's not a lack of, it's not because of a lack of awareness. Creativity is nowhere near that awareness about creativity is nowhere near that kind of level that we have for physical fitness. And I would think it's absolutely as important as physical, intellectual, social fitness that we have. We take care of ourselves. We take care of our, we take care of our social lives. We hang out with friends. We do a lot to take care of ourselves. And partly what my plea would be that people start to recognize that there is this thing in them that only, that is really quite unique because it's theirs. And it's a process to identify something that they like to do or they find interesting or they are curious about and pursue it as a real practice and devote just a little time regularly it could be every day it could be every two days to it just a little bit like you would to your physical fitness and keep it to yourself it's not to share it's not to do anything because if you are unaware the worst thing to do is to share things because it can be snuffed out immediately you know but once you start to see surprise yourself with what you create you start to build, develop the strength in order to feel a little more like that you have the confidence at least to try and do it more and more and then you can expand that a little bit but the main thing I would say is to A, recognize that you have it, then figure out what it is that interests you specifically. It could be writing. It could be, I don't know, cooking. It could be anything really, but just to push that and be really, really self-reflective about your process. That is the main thing. Think, look, study yourself, study your own mind, because there lies all of the promise that you will ever need to do anything with it. Indeed. Well, your passion is evident. And so thank you, Anna Abraham, for sharing your insights into creativity, interdisciplinary research, psychology, to help us tap into our imaginations and live lives of greater joy, purpose, and meaning. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much, Mia. Wonderful to be able to do so. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer and Digital Media Coordinator on this podcast was Megan Hegemar. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.